Thank you for the privilege of being here. It is a joy to be back and to experience the vibrant ministry that's happening on this side of the city, which we hear so much about over at UCCD. We thank God for his faithfulness to you, Redeemer, over the last three years. seems like longer than that. Now think for a moment, how great would it be if what's happened here were replicated in other cities throughout this nation and indeed throughout the entire region? Friends, let's pray in 2013 that the United Christian Church of Dubai, which I pastor, and that Redeemer Church of Dubai would partner together to be an engine for church planting, evangelism, spiritual growth on the Arabian Peninsula. Let's pray to that end. It was three years ago that UCCD sent many beloved servants, many faithful friends to launch this church, and it was costly, it was a privilege, And now, it's your turn. Now, you have the opportunity to send and to go. I know that many of you in this room are considering going to launch the church in Ras al-Khaimah. I want to commend you for that, and I want to encourage many of you to go. Even as some of you left from here to come here, I want to encourage many of you here to now go into Ras al-Khaimah in order to vanquish the enemy and to bring light into the darkness in that place. Just ask yourself this, what better way to spend your life, your energy, your time, your money, than by initiating, launching a healthy assembly of believers in an emirate, R-A-K, which presently is unreached with the evangelical witness? What better way to spend your life than by going to R-A-K? This morning, we're going to consider one reason why you should do that. And before we do, let's pray. Lord, we take comfort even in the midst of trials in this life. Lord, even as there is so much that is set up against us. Lord, even as we deal with the weakness of our own flesh. Yet we take comfort that yours is the victory, even as we've been singing this morning. Lord, we take hope in the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the fact that all authority in heaven and on earth is His. And so we call upon you, our Savior, to make use of that authority even during this next few moments here together. Lord, we know that the unfolding of your word brings light, so we call upon you, Holy Spirit, to to come and minister among us and transform us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Visiting various church buildings in the United Kingdom, I began to notice something a couple years ago that was odd. And the odd thing was this, that many of the older churches were situated in the midst of graveyards. So in order to get in the front door of the church, you have to pass through a cemetery. And I thought, what a helpful object lesson that is. A little long-term perspective just before you go into worship God. And the perspective is this. Life for you will not always be the way that it is now. It's so easy, isn't it, just to think life's always going to hum along in the same way. I'm going to be dealing with the same relationships, same struggles. No, it's not the case. And, of course, the day will come when your life will end. 
is there anything more important for us to consider on this, the first Friday of 2013, than that the sands of time are sinking? C.H. Spurgeon said, There may be some of you who stand today like a man upon the shore when the tide is swelling toward his feet. There came one wave, and it took away the grandmother. Another came, and a mother was swept away. Another came, and the wife was taken. And now it dashes at your feet. How long shall it be ere it breaks over you, and you too are carried away by the yawning wave into the bosom of the deep of death? Friend, what awaits you in this coming year? How many more New Year's days do you have to celebrate? How do you respond to death? I think most of us respond to death by ignoring it. Maybe giving it some passing thought at a funeral or at the doctor's office before we head off to more pressing business. Last year, one of our beloved members, Bob Harper, many of you knew and loved him, passed away after a nine-month illness. What do you say to people? to beloved friends and family of the deceased when their lives are shaken to the very core? What does Christianity have to offer people whose foundations are literally quaking? Well, some vaguely insist that everything will be okay. Others urge that if you adopt the Christian faith, then disappointment and distress will just vanish, just go away. But, you know, talk to many Christians and they'll tell you that once they begin to follow Christ... Struggles didn't go away. In fact, they intensified. Life got more complicated. New trials began to enter in. No, the truth is the Bible never promised us a pain-free life or a life spared from persecution and disappointment. To use biblical language for every Daniel who was rescued from the lion's den, thousands more stayed there and got consumed. Right For every Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were consumed in the fl- who, who were delivered from the flames, thousands more died there, following Christ. Friends, we live in a fallen world, and it's set up against us. Just as Isaac Watts once asked, "Is this vile world a friend to grace to help us on to God?" Well, the answer to that is no. Some may say so, but in the end, they will be bitterly disappointed. I think one good reason to read church history is that previous generations of Christians were more clued in on this. They were more realistic, more biblical. They asked, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease when others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Friends, our challenge as we move into a new year is this. How do we overcome in a fallen world? A world that is marked by pain and persecution, disappointment, and death. How do we overcome in that kind of a world? You know, whatever you might think of the Bible, you must confess, if you're familiar with it, it does address these questions head on. So this morning, please open with me to the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel, chapter 7. You can find that in your bulletin. If you're here for the first time, just 
look through the bulletin and find where, where it says the passage Daniel 7. You will be helped if you follow along carefully with me this morning as we'll be walking through this together. Daniel was a faithful Jewish believer in the 6th century B.C., so 600 years before Christ. Daniel was living in modern-day Palestine. As a teenager, he was uprooted from his home, and he was exiled hundreds of kilometers away in Babylon. Babylon was the major empire of the day, and Daniel and thousands of his countrymen were exiled there. The Babylonian Empire had crushed Israel's defenses, And now the Jewish people were exposed, vulnerable, outnumbered. And into this hopeless situation, God revealed himself. He revealed himself to Daniel in a series of visions. We're going to look at one of those this morning. These visions gave Daniel the key not only to survive in a fallen world, but to prevail in it. So this is the key for you and me as we look ahead to 2013. It's really two things that you must do. Number one, you must know your enemy. Secondly, you must know your God. First, know your enemy. Second, know your God. First, know your enemy. Look with me at Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man. And the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that, appeared, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, this wasn't so much a dream as as much as it was a nightmare. These beasts were monstrous and foreboding. And I want you to understand that they concern not only the exiles in Babylon 2,500 years ago. Friends, these beasts concern you and me today. So let's see what they say for us. Now, our passage this morning is a bit unusual, as you can tell. It's called apocalyptic literature. 
Apocalyptic means unveiling or disclosing mysteries in a highly evocative, dramatic, symbolic way. A New Testament example of this is the book of Revelation. Now, we don't use apocalyptic so much today, so there's a good bit of confusion surrounding this genre of Scripture. But let's not set aside plain common sense when we look at this kind of writing. One scholar says that instinctively, we know that a sentence that begins, the stars will fall from heaven, the sun will cease its shining, and the moon will drip blood, will not end, and the rest of the country will be partly cloudy with scattered showers. No, common sense tells you there's a mismatch there, right? One part of the sentence was apocalyptic. The other part was straightforward conventional weather forecast. People typically make one of two mistakes in reading this kind of thing. Okay, the first one is to try to nail down every detail and draw a confident connection to something going on in the newspapers or in foreign relations today. I don't think that was Daniel's intent. So in reading this kind of literature, make sure that you don't miss the forest for the trees. Okay, ask yourself, why did Daniel write this? Why did he include this chapter in the book? Don't press the details any farther than Daniel wanted them to be pressed. That's one common mistake people make, over-reading the text. Here's the other mistake people make, under-reading the text. That is, they ignore it altogether. Everybody knows this is apocalyptic, it is alien, so we're just going to ignore it because nobody can agree on what it means anyway. It's mystifying. So let's simply skip over this book of the Bible, or at least the last several chapters. Well, this is an equally unfortunate error, because all of God's Word is for all of God's people. So don't think you have to have a seminary education to understand the mysteries disclosed here. Yet we value and and thank God for teachers in the church. But at the end of the day, this is God's Word for all of God's people. So... Let's not either overread the text or underread it. So then, what do these beasts signify? And how can we be so sure? Well, look with me at verse 15 of chapter 7. Down to verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. He's referring to an angel. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. So there it is. We don't have to guess. It's talking about four kings or kingdoms. And interestingly, if you've read the whole of the book of Daniel... And you might want to do that this afternoon. It'll take you an hour or so. We see the same thing going on back in chapter 2 where there's another dream involving four kingdoms. So obviously there's significance here. Back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor, had a dream of a giant statue with four sections. You had a gold head, a silver chest, a belly and thighs of bronze, and then the legs and feet were of iron mixed with clay. So one vision, Daniel 2, sheds light on another vision, Daniel 7, amplifies and builds on it. So where did these beasts come from? Well, all four of them, you see in verse 2, all four of them emerged out of the sea, that symbol of watery chaos and 
peril. So that's not a good place. This first beast was like a lion with wings of an eagle. Now, elsewhere, Scripture describes Babylon as both a lion and an eagle, and there are archaeological findings from the day that use similar descriptions of Babylon, so the symbolism is pretty clear. The torn-off wings in the heart of a man there remind us of Nebuchadnezzar's humbling experience back in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of Babylon who at a certain point was disciplined by God because of his outrageous pride and he lost his senses and for a period of time began acting like an animal until he was restored graciously. So that's the first beast. It's Babylon. The second one was a bear which refers to the Medo-Persian Empire, just as the silver chest and arms do back in chapter 2. Persia was poised to devour Babylon. So Persia was told in verse 5, look at verse 5. It says, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Now, when Daniel was writing, Babylon was just about to go down at the hands of the Persians. Incidentally, I'm not just making these nations up. We know this is true both historically, but also as we we connect it with what's said in chapter 8 and other places in Daniel. So it's clear what nations are being described here. Then there's the third beast. There's the leopard. This swift and fearsome beast with four wings on its back, four heads. Not the kind of thing you'd want to meet in a dark alley. Now, this resembles the next world power that would arise on the scene, which was the great empire of Greece, whose ruler, Alexander the Great, conquered the world by the tender age of 32. And that brings us to the fourth and final beast there. Chronologically, it would naturally be Rome with iron teeth crushing and devouring its victims. Notice it says that one's different from the rest with those mysterious horns. Our attention is really drawn from the beast to the ten horns, and then from the ten horns to that one little horn. Now, you should envision the horn of a wild ox or some other powerful animal thrusting violently forward. Daniel was obviously perplexed by the horns. Maybe you are. But isn't it good that Daniel got an explanation from an angel? Look at verse 23. 23, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. Now, what do we do with this information? Some people search history for a revival of the Roman Empire. Other people develop careful charts and timelines for precisely identifying which kingdoms comprise the ten. That sounds a little bit more like speculation than interpretation to me. It's kind of like those who oppose the UK entering the European economic community. You remember that? Because it would bring the member numbers to ten, clearly fulfilling the ten horns of the fourth beast. I think that would be to miss the point. Daniel gives us really no clue as to the identity of the ten horns. It may be the case that they refer to the ten ten emperors who rose out of the Roman Empire, 
I think as we piece this together with Revelation, though, it's more likely that the ten horns are a symbol of completeness. In other words, arising out of this Roman beast will come one empire after another, after another, bloodthirsty and bent on destroying God's people throughout the course of human history. Isn't this what Jesus told us to expect in Matthew 24? Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. I mean, just think of the 20th century alone, right? You've got Pol Pot, you've got Hitler, Stalin, you've got Sudan, Cambodia, North Korea. These are manifestations of the same spirit that animated Rome's hostility toward God's people and the other empires before them. Rome is gone, but the spirit lives on. Well, this is the age-long conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And it's likely that these ten horns represent the entire era of the Christian church. So from Rome all the way forward to the end. But one day, it will get worse. There will come a horrible intensification of the hostility, a kind of a spike in the persecution. Look with me at verse 24, in the middle of the verse. After them, another king will arise, different from the early, earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. This little horn represents the spike, the intensification, the consummation of hostility against God's people. In other words, it's the Antichrist that we read of in the New Testament. Notice what he will do. He'll proudly speak against God. He will try to change the times and the laws. He will oppress God's people. Sounds a lot like what we see in 2 Thessalonians and Revelation. Let me show you that. Turn to the New Testament to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians. It's after Acts, after Romans after Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Listen to this. Paul says to this, uh, this, this church plant of his, he says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come, that is the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, a man doomed to destruction. And then listen to the description of him. He will oppose and will exalt, exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. It's an intensification of the evil that will occur at the end. And it's the same thing that Mark read for us from Revelation chapter 13. Turn with me to Revelation 13. 
Here we see the beast, the Antichrist. This is in the last book of your Bible, chapter 13. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had, notice this, ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns. And on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. I take that to be a reference to empires that have been vanquished, destroyed, but then sort of reappear throughout church history. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Now, do you see what the author of Revelation has done? John. What he's done here is he has combined all those beasts of Daniel 7, all four of them, into one massive mega-beast. The Antichrist, the one who is to come. And so, with the benefit of the whole scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, you and I can see the fulfillment of Daniel's dream, even though it was given some 600 years before Christ. This is how we piece things together. Revelation 13, verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies, and to exercise his authority for 42 months, that is, three and a half years, three and a half seasons. Again, a reference to the little horn. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war to the, uh, against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. This describes the age-long conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men who oppress God's people. The beast and his ten horns continue stalking the earth today. And so here in Daniel 7, 600 years before Christ, we have a sweeping vision of the entire age between the first and second comings, from the Roman Empire forward to the very end with the, the spike, the consummation of opposition in the arrival of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. Now, what do you make of this? Well, I think it should be a warning to everyone in this room. We should know our enemy. Right? There is a spirit of opposition at work in this world against God's people. You see it in godless governments. You see it in religious persecution. You see it in seminaries that have gone liberal, that no longer believe Christ was raised from the dead. You see it in corrupted institutions of all kinds. You see it in false religions. And so we should be warned, this world is no friend to your faith. Paul said our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So if you're a Christian here this morning, this means many things for you, but one of them is this. 
you need to be a member of a local church. You need to be associated with people who can help you against this beast. Now, I'm not saying that we're saved by church membership. No, we're saved by grace alone, in Christ alone. But people who are truly saved recognize their need. Their need for others to be investing in their lives. Because the Christian life is not a solo enterprise. No, it's a community project. So, we've got hundreds of people this morning. I wonder how many people here regularly attend this church. Consider this to be your church. But maybe you've not taken that step to actually publicly identify to confess, I need help. My own heart is prone to wander. And I want you to lovingly speak into my life. And I'm coming under the authority of these elders. And indeed this whole congregation. We need one another to resist the beast that's in this world. Friends, sheep were meant to be in a flock. And they were meant to be tended by shepherds. Pastors. So if you're here as a Christian. Well, I would urge you to join the church. Become a member so that God's people can support you better. Don't be what John Stott called that grotesque anomaly, a churchless Christian. This is one of the most important reasons why we want to be about the business of planting other churches. How good is it for the kingdom that we've got a, a church in Jebel Alley and now a church in Dira, and now we want to see others scattered, sprinkled throughout the region? This is why we should... Invest, we should send and go to Ras al-Khaimah in order to build an assembly of people there who can protect one another from the beast, from the darkness that exists up in RAK so they can shine brightly like a city set on the hill. This is why you should be dedicated not only to your own individual spiritual disciplines, but to the well-being of an assembly of believers. Now, if you're here and you're one who calls yourself a Christian, You've heard this message from Dave and others here, but you have not bothered to join a church. You've not bothered to avail yourself of the benefits that flow from that kind of fellowship and accountability. What you may be thinking too highly of yourself. You may simply have underestimated the the seriousness of this conflict. You may be slumbering through life overconfident. Maybe you resemble that little horn more than the way you should. The swagger, the pride, the boasting. Examine yourself. Are there any resemblances between you and that horn? Kaiser Wilhelm was the ruler of Germany who took his nation into World War I, and he had a valet, a servant, who once wrote of the Kaiser... He said, the Kaiser was always longing to be the center of attention. If it was a christening, he wanted to be the baby. If it was a wedding, he wanted to be the bride. If it was a funeral, he wanted to be the corpse. Now, that's clear enough in the little horn. But do you see the resonances of that in your own life? Overconfidence. Boasting. Does Satan find in you a willing accomplice as he goes about his business? Is there a natural alliance between you and the beast? Examine yourself. As you launch into 2013, soberly reflect on your own status before God. Join a church. Invest in the lives of others. 
you can be self-deceived because the world and the flesh and the devil conspire to harm you, to make you fruitless. In fact, were it not for God's intervention, friends, none of us could stand. We would fall before this demonic power. You see that in verse 21? Back in Daniel 7 now. Look at Daniel 7, verse 21. Notice what happens in 7.21. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came. Friends, God alone can help us in this fight. He must come and save His people. That's the point of the three and a half periods in verse 25. Look at verse 25. The saints will be handed over to Him for a time, times, and half a time. Now add those up and you get three and a half. One plus two plus a half. The idea seems to be it's not a full period of seven times, the normal number of completion, as you would expect, but rather three and a half as though the period of persecution is cut short by the gracious intervention of God. God's our only hope. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing. Friends, in order to prevail in this fallen world, you must know your enemy. He is crafty. He is prowling around like a roaring lion. You must know him. But secondly, we see here in this passage this morning, you must know your God. You see, what was that little horn while he was swaggering and boasting? What was happening behind the scenes? Look at verse 9. He's speaking boastfully, and then verse 9 we read, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. It's an angelic court, much like what we see in, in Ezekiel chapter 1, in Revelation chapter 4, and books are opened. Why is that? Well, books are open because God is the judge, right? Not only does he take note of every evil deed, every thought, every motive, every intention of the heart, but he will judge everyone. Everyone will be seen to be called to account and unlike earthly rulers, God is never corrupt. So he's pure. His clothing is white as snow. Unlike earthly rulers, this God is never wrong. He's never mistaken in his judgments. He's wise and measured, and so symbolically the hair of his head is white, representing the wisdom of age. Unlike empires scrambling for power and recognition, what's God doing? Well, he's calmly seated on the throne. He is the Ancient of Days. He always was. He always will be. No one is threatening him. He's never taken by surprise. He's never in a panic about this world. Judgment is coming. That's the river of fire flowing from the throne in verse 10. But in spite of these heavenly proceedings, in spite of the magnificent appearance of this God, what is that little horn doing? Well, he's still there spluttering and spouting off and boasting. Verse 11 
Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So as you work through the chapter, it's really a little anticlimactic. The beast is just destroyed. The others were allowed to live for a little while longer, but that just highlights that God's in control of them. He enables them to live. Even though they're wicked, God is controlling every one of their moves. Did you notice God's sovereign control in the midst of all of this? Where did these beasts come from, anyway? Did you notice that back in verse 2? There before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. And then the four beasts come up. Who was it that blew those winds from heaven? Well, it's the same person whose voice we hear in verse 5, get up and fill your, uh, get your fill of flesh. Or take the leopard in verse 6 at the end of the verse. It was given authority to rule. Authority given by whom? Well, by God. God is sovereign. And as we read this passage and as we think about our lives, we should marvel at his command and control of this world even the most hostile elements of it. There is never a hint in the Bible that there is some uncertain cosmic struggle going on and that there is some question about who might come out on top. No, God is presented here as sovereign and enthroned. And this is the point of Daniel's book. No matter how out of control your life might seem this morning, God rules it all. He's sovereign even over the little details of your life. He's more important than your job, more important than your health or relationships or gadgets or your to-do list. He is the ancient of days. He's the ultimate reality in Daniel 7 and in your life as well. So just put yourself in Daniel's shoes for a second. Think of it. Here's this foreign teenager who's uprooted and he's now living in a distant land in exile in the first year of Belshazzar. He's working as the aide to this emperor. Maybe he was wondering how this new king would like him. Maybe he was wondering how the office politics would work out for this Jewish boy amid all the Babylonians. Maybe he was concerned about his job assignment. What an act of kindness it was for God to show Daniel at just this moment who was really in control behind the scenes. Friend, doesn't the same apply to you? Aren't you a lot like Daniel? Maybe you're in a new position. Maybe you've taken on a task that brings with it great uncertainty and change. Maybe you're away from home for the first time, living in a hostile culture. And what is God saying to you through this? He's saying to you the same thing he was saying to Daniel. And that is, this God is in control of all of your circumstances, every last one of them. And he's bringing them to you for your good. I love what John Calvin called Satan in his commentary on Job. He called him God's scalpel. Satan has only malice, but God in his sovereign power can even turn Satan as the most skillful surgeon turns his scalpel. Doesn't mean that it's pleasant to be cut on like that. 
but it does mean you can trust the wise plan of the heavenly physician in your life. The living God in heaven must matter more to you than the pain or anxiety or uncertainty of this world. God is seated on his throne. But notice the Ancient of Days isn't the only character that we see in this chapter. No, there's one more. Verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, these bizarre beasts were brawling. The horn was boasting, desperately clinging to any power that it could. But then in comes a surprisingly humble alternative, one like the Son of Man. Unlike the beasts, this one was made in the image of the Creator. He's a man... He's the man par excellence. But he also appears to be something much more than a man. Notice he's coming on the clouds of heaven. That's something that only God does. He even receives worship. Verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. And just like the ancient of days, this son of man has an everlasting kingdom. So I hope you see here that in this one person you have both man and God. And all of all the titles that Jesus could have taken for himself when we turn to the Gospels. Isn't it interesting that this is the one he used most often and exclusively for himself? Jesus was just a son of man. An ambiguous title, even cryptic. People were often asking, who is this man? And Jesus allowed the ambiguity to continue as he called himself just a son of man. Could have been considered to be just an, a normal person. But yet we have this backdrop in Daniel 7, which was loaded with implications. One night, Jesus revealed it. It was the night that he was betrayed. Jesus had been arrested. He was silent under interrogation until the religious leaders charged him under oath, according to the law of Moses, to say who he was. They said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, Yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He was saying, I'm coming to judge the world. Now, there was no more ambiguity in who Jesus was saying he was. Then we read, the high priest tore his clothes and said, He's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And so they condemned him, and they nailed him to a tree. He was executed for saying that he was the Son of Man, and that he would descend on clouds of heaven. This was a claim to divinity. Jesus was placing himself on a par with the Ancient of Days. His tormentors never even considered the possibility that what he was saying was true, that he really was the Son of Man. So, not the four beasts, not the little horn, but the humble Son of Man was the one who received the kingdom, the authority. 
What's interesting, though, is how Jesus received it. He received it not through conquering like the beasts, killing and destroying, but rather through suffering and serving. His was a ministry of suffering and serving. And so when his disciples finally realized who he was, what did Jesus immediately begin teaching them? He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, that he would be killed and after that rise again. So this is how Jesus defeated the forces of evil in this world, not through overwhelming power, but through dying on a cross. It was on the cross that Jesus won his ultimate victory. And so receiving the kingdom, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus conquered on the cross to win the forgiveness of anyone here this morning who would turn and believe on him. He calls you to do just that. Jesus Christ today is exalted as the heavenly Son of Man. He will one day come again. In the meantime, He gives an invitation to you. He offers amnesty to you. If you're one who's not a follower of Christ, He invites you to come to Him, to receive forgiveness, to be saved. But Daniel's point is that if you choose to follow Christ, it won't be easy. Now, the enemy has been disarmed, but he's not dead. Even though he's been defeated by Jesus, the horn is still boasting. Look at verse 21. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Judgment Day is when Christ will return. Then the Antichrist and his influences and Satan will be destroyed once and for all. But until then, we're called to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Suffering first, then glory. Look at verse 26. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Christ and his people will be seen visibly and publicly to reign on that day. We can be confident that God is on the throne of our lives and that Christ has decisively defeated the enemy. But don't be deceived. You know, for every Daniel delivered from the lion's den, thousands were not. For every Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego delivered from the flames of persecution, thousands were not. It's a sobering message of suffering for God's people, I confess. Just look at Daniel's response in the last verse. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. I wonder, what do you make of pain and persecution, of disappointment and death? Must you be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease when others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? You know, if you're a follower of Christ, you must follow the pattern of your leader, suffering first, then glory. In order to prevail in this world, we must know our enemy well, And we must know our God. 
We must know his authority, his sheer sovereign control, his unlimited dominion. I wonder, does this God connect with you and your life? One writer said, I need a lot of things in my life. There are schedules and details and a long to-do list. I need food and water and shelter. I need sleep. I need more exercise. I need to eat better. But this is my greatest need and yours, to know God, love God, delight in God, make much of God. Be a person in 2013 whose life is centered on this great God. These are the people who can survive and even thrive when everything else around them is crumbling. When the beast is breathing down your neck, the sovereign son of man promises to be there even through the midst of your suffering. Surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. 17th century Scottish minister Samuel Rutherford learned this. He was no stranger to suffering and persecution. Like many before him, Rutherford's faithful life exposed him to ridicule and suffering, imprisonment, exile. Toward the end of his life, he was actually charged with high treason and was on his way to execution for insisting that earthly kings are subject to a higher law. But the summons that he received from the earthly authorities came too late. He was already on his deathbed, from which Rutherford responded, Tell them I've got a summons already before a superior judge in judiciary, and I behoove to answer my first summons. And before your day come, I will be where few kings and great folks come. This man, like Daniel, had placed his hope in a higher judge and judiciary. Where is your hope today? Where is your hope for 2013? Let's pray. Lord, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Lord, we're sobered by this message of Daniel, even as he was sobered by it. And we pray that you would give us light and understanding and help us to apply it to our own lives. Lord, we thank you for the bedrock of the ancient of days and of the Son of Man who came the first time to suffer and will come again to judge. Lord, cause us as your people to be found faithful on that last day. Lord, I pray that for Redeemer Church of Dubai. I pray that you would protect this congregation from the onslaught of the beast and the evil one. Lord, cause these people to cling to Christ and his promises and to honor you through lives that are countercultural and obedient and faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.